Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Computer Room slash Exhaust. This is a, another crossover with me and Default Friend. What's up, DF? Not a lot. Just uh, thinking about how Philip K. Dick had a lot of mental health issues. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. What a wild guy. So that's who we're going to be talking about today. And today we are going to be talking about his essay, which was or lecture that was given in 1972, which is entitled The Android and the Human. This was given at a sci-fi convention at the University of British Columbia towards the beginning of that year. And this is a wild one. Can I ask you before we start, like where you found this? I had never heard of it until you sent it. I think, I don't remember, I actually don't remember. I think I found it in like the post-human reader or something. I was on I was on some kind of weird kick. <laughs> it was, it, and I was like late at night and I, it was, I think, yeah, I think it was a post-human reader or like something with a similar title. And it, it became like a tab that was just like sitting open until I finally was like, all right, let's, let's see what this is all about. And, you know, the first, the first few pages of this, because there's no recording of, of this speech, unfortunately, are, are, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. But then as, as you all will find out, he goes off the rails and, and less exciting ways than, than normal for him. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, at first I was like, my God, he's about to do it. And then I was like, oh man, he's from California. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, so I just read like a 600 page uh, book of articles and like, you know, whatever speeches, basically everything by Margaret Atwood. And she does, she seems like prone to the same thing mm-hmm. where it's like this, I guess she's, I think she, I think she might be a, no, she's not a West coaster. She's from, she's from Canada actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does the same thing that he does where she just sort of like is so prescient. And then it's just like, is just like an old person rambling, you know, mm-hmm. but even when she was young, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's definitely the vibe that comes through here. So in this lecture, at least for the first part and then intermittently throughout, it has this sort of elliptical and as we said, meandering quality. PKD wants to offer some troubling suggestions about what he thinks is coming down the pike, if not already underway. And that is... Uh, a more symbiotic relationship between machines or androids and human beings. And the way he talks about that is that in the same way that primitive tribes allege or are alleged to look to the world without them for insight into how they are. In other words, the world is animated with meaning, character, all of these things contra the modern or advanced or sophisticated, however you want to be in sort of your imperial ease about that uh, subject, which understands self to be a relatively self-contained unit operating the world. They see this world as rich with meaning that is in fact sort of a childlike projection of their inner lives and acquiring maturity, as I've said, is denying that and understanding that it's all within you. This is the account as PKD renders it to us at the beginning. And he says, we might be seeing some sort of return to that with the era of the computer and the Android, that we can now perhaps look towards machines to understand our own lives. And 
that I think is the kernel of what he wants to look at. Now he veers off in several directions and we'll get into that. He wants to say some things about the kids that are growing up in this control society. He wants to say some things about the nature of surveillance in this control society, the nature of rebellion. And he also wants to talk about the role of human empathy as a way to refuse to become an android. There's also some very fascinating discussion of sort of human cognition and the ability to make exceptions or break the rules as um, opposed to a more strictly repetitive and redundant android existence. A lot of this gets muddled as we go through, but there's a lot valuable and even valuable in the ways that it's wrong. So where should we start, TF? I mean, maybe let's let's start let's let's start right at the top. Yeah. Um, you know, observing machines to understand ourselves. And then he so he sort of he lays this out and then he he brings up you know interesting hypothetical from the Polish sci-fi writer Stanislaw Lem, who who suggests that perhaps one day uh, men will try to rape sewing machines. And PKD, you know, counters that with, and then you know, will this will the sewing machine be able to press charges against mm-hmm. the rapist? Which I thought was like a really a really interesting way of looking at it. Like we're we're humanizing our technology, which I actually I don't know if I agree with that. If I if, I think that may have been true at the time. I don't know if that stays true. I think as I. I I could see why he would say that and why Lem would say it, because you do have, you know, around this time, you do have like several well-publicized instances of people developing these very human-like relationships with computer programs or Mm -hmm. machines themselves. But now I feel as though we see the machines as extensions of ourselves as opposed to, you know, separate beings at all. Like, you know, my phone is not my friend. My phone is another Lem. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember working with teenagers and being like, you know, if you could embed your iPhone into your arm, would you? And they were like, oh, yeah, that'd be so much easier. I wouldn't lose it. I remember even Logo doing a thread a couple of years ago, maybe talking about the difference in Internet interfaces or the aesthetics of websites between the early aughts and now. And a lot of it was, I don't know if he was doing this intentionally or not. I, I, I don't know his thought or him at all, really. But some of it was sort of like Baudrillardian economy of the sign stuff, where some of these buttons or things you would click on looked like representations of things you might find in the real world. And then at a certain point, they become self-referential, the sort of flat design world that we all live in. Brad Trammell just released a great report on this not too long ago for people that are interested in that. But the thing that Logo said that I thought was really sharp and speaks to what you're saying here is he says, there is something about this new aesthetic that feels like it's trying to get inside of you, where the older designs looked like something that was exterior to you. And I think that's sort of part of what's different about the world that PKD is looking at versus the world we live in today. I, I think you're totally right. It there at some point, at some point there's a shift and it becomes more and more of like, how can you, you know, how how can how can these tools cease to be tools and augment the, 
the person, which, in, you mm-hmm. know, which in a way with, you know, a lot of the questions that he's asking in this piece, you know, like what makes a human human is, is a theme that comes up over and over again. You know, what, what amount of what we consider human empathy is a cultural construction, which of course he like, you know, he goes into in great detail and the Android stream of electric sheep, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's there, but it, he, he doesn't seem to make the, the connection quite yet. Right. And it might not be there. There's some interesting sort of assumptions he makes about how the future is going to work. And it's the standard, I don't want to say mistake, but unavoidable habit of future casting. He's right that there's something totalitarian underfoot. He talks about this several times. And I think he's also right to point out that it threatens the human spirit, the dying bird of the human spirit, as he talks about it in reference to Thomas Paine. But what seems different to me is that it is not the command and control society, the relatively Fordist society that existed in the post-war era and that he's talking about. And given that this comes out in 1972, which is right before the OPEC crisis in 73, he's really talking about a world that will, by the next year, start to come apart socially, ideologically, culturally, and frankly, materially, as America experiences uh, a series of pretty shocking energy crises, along with social disintegration, the death of the Keynesian welfare state, and an ascendance of a new ideology. Some call it neoliberalism, but there's much more attached to it than that. There's a totally rhizomatic totalitarian control scheme that starts to emerge from his home state of California, I would say, especially as Silicon Valley becomes civilianized. So it's, I think we've basically crossed into that world entirely in the post-COVID era, and that is where a lot of us in the developed world live, especially. And I think that that gives us different and perhaps more productive inflections with which we can ask some of the same questions he is. Like, how do I understand myself by looking at my computer more carefully? He also seems to waffle a lot though. Yes. Which he, in contradicts himself a lot. You know, there's moments where it feels like he is sort of getting it and he, is, he does sort of sense these changes that you're talking about. Like one, one thing I thought was interesting and he, he immediately contradicts himself after uh, saying this is he basically says that there's too much mass media and it's going mm-hmm. to get to the point where there's so much information that there's no information and kids will rebel not because they're individualists but because they're burnt out and then he like goes on to say actually they're individuals and they're phone freakers which mm-hmm. uh, i believe like steve jobs famously was I, th- I think it was i think it was steve jobs you know they're they're breaking the rules they have this hacker ethos he doesn't call it that of course but like you know he's that's that's basically what he's describing and i kind of i was kind of disappointed because i feel like that train of like that train of thought about this like fragmentation is so interesting and it becomes increasingly more true with each passing year. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is that the kids he's talking about, right, of course, have totally shaped and run the world that we live in now. So they don't seem like much of a departure from the, that he hoped from the older orders that he was a part of. Though it's understandable, you know, PKD and I, I don't know how old he is now, but at, at the time that he, he gives this speech, but 
you know, the older generations had seen several wars, had witnessed rapid modernization, lived a life totally alien from that of their grandparents and their great grandparents. And that was indeed shocking and probably made people think that the younger generation, which literally could not inherit much of what was transmitted in the generations before, might be this sort of tabula rasa for a new way to be. The phone freakers part was very interesting. So for, so for people who don't know the phone freaker, as PKD describes them, are these people who figured out basically how to hack the phone company using transmitters or something. There's this figure named Captain Crunch who figures out that the whistle in a Captain Crunch cereal box is the same frequency that is used by the phone company to surveil you or something like that. And that that is the frequency that every phone freaker learns how to whistle in order to disconnect as soon as they hear that coming on. And I thought that that was fascinating and sort of speaks to the sort of difficulty in his thought. The thing he can't quite fully see, the thing that is truer than he knows it in this piece, which is our relationship to these machines. Like, yes, this is a type of rebellion against the vertically integrated telephone system, but it also requires you to conspire to literally breathe with, in the traditional sense, the machine itself to do that. And I think that's in moments like that, the beginning of the welding of man and machine together in some of the way that we have it now. I, I mean, funnily enough, the phone, I mean, the phone freakers do go on to build what we today know as Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they're the ones that topple the, you know, the old guard, the, they, not just the telephone companies, but IBM and you know, mm -hmm. the, the dinosaurs. So I, mean, I thought that they, there's so many moments like that in this piece. <laughs> right, right. Or just realize. The, the iPhone in general, like the <laughs> ultimate phone object done by <laughs> a former phone freaker. And it is like compulsively touchable by design. You know, famously, Steve Jobs hates the frictive nature of buttons. And so he's like, everything needs to be smooth. <laughs> you, yeah, know? Well, you, know, you know what I think I wish he did actually maybe it's not so much that he's contradicting himself or, you know, maybe it's something just about the way it's articulated. He fails to make the distinction between the, you know, the kids of that, you know, the kids who will go on to be the adults who build Silicon Valley and mm -hmm. the, and the rest of us, he sort of, he, he's very, he, the, it's very muddled and he describes them as one group, which makes it seem like he's contradicting himself, but, you know, maybe he's, he's sort of right in both ways, but if only he said, you know, there's, there's this one group of, of, of kids who are kind of just, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're burnt out. They, they don't stand a chance. And then there's this smaller group of, of, of people with this, this California optimism that mm. they're, you know, they're the ones that are going to seize power. But instead he's, he seems, it seems like he's just like grappling in the dark. So maybe he doesn't even realize that they're two different groups. It's just kind of like, you know, I, I will say, I think he was, addicted to speed so I think that might be part of it where he, it's you know it, it's funny but like it, it's it, I think that that might explain some of the, the style or it's just like he's it's like inside 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 but he doesn't turn off to sort of collect himself and like you know make it make sense it's you know <laughs> no it's sort of going yeah. all over the place I mean I like the idea of that distinction it gives me two sort of questions or ideas and I, and I wonder what you think of them when we're looking at these two groups of kids there are sort of the kids who become burnt out, right, 
by the information overload, the sensory, uh, sensory overload, they become inoperative in the way that society needs them to become a cog. And PKD talks about that pretty explicitly. And then there are the people, the phone freakers, we've talked about that. I wonder if those two, let's say cohorts sort of existed in a similar cultural melange in California. And that's why it may have been difficult to disaggregate them. I think that's possible. You know, and I also think that there's an argument to be made where maybe the, you know, the phone freaker type is just the one who is able to adapt, right? You know, if I, so he goes, when he talks about, he goes on to talk about empathy and, and uh, thinking and feeling and, you know, how we're sort of molding people to receive signals and think, but not not intuit them in, in, in their body, basically. And, and, you know, up until this point, this is known as a schizoid personality type. But I think he's implying that technology is sort of making us all, you know, androids and androids are inherently sort of schizoid in the way he, he describes it. And I'm wondering if like the, the, the hacker type or, you know, whatever you want to call it, like if those are the people who they suffer from the same sort of handicap, but they are able to recognize the way in which, well, if I meld with the machine, then I have a chance at living a fuller, a fuller life. And I think you kind of see this theme. I mean, you, you definitely see it in the, in the present day. Like, you know, we're all autists, but some of us are able to like, you know, get really into crypto or something or like work in tech. And like, those are the autists that are like kind of optimistic about how black and white mm. your thinking is. Like there's the, you know, there's the, 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 the Silicon Valley ra- rationalist with the capital R, but then there's, you know, there's the 4chan autist who's kind of broken by the world and sometimes mm. are the same person, but not always. I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, yeah, I keep thinking of returning to sort of like whether you're, it's sort of like, are you incapable of assimilating or are you smart enough to like maliciously comply? Yeah. And that seems to be a dividing line. What's worrying to me about this as someone who has still living, but about to not live here and has <laughs> visited the Bay quite often, the depictions of like absolute California lawless really hit close to home as I was reading this. I know you've lived there too. Like, what did you make of that? The whole element of rebellion and sort of a breakdown of order that he's looking at here. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because it, it, it feels like the, the chaos is always sort of in the background as though these aren't people who are experiencing this. And you, I mean, I, I think, I, I think that's, that's, that's true in contemporary, you know, in contemporary depictions of like, you know, crime addled California, like somehow it's like a separate, it's not the, 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 the breakdown of orders on part of the fabric of who, you know, who we all are in the world we're all living in. It's like this background annoyance that right. is somehow like a separate piece, which is really strange, you know, now to say it out loud, like, I feel like I, I kind of always thought and recognized this, but to actually say it, like, it feels like it's actually really, fu- that's extremely fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just this unfortunate consequence of literally everything we do and think that's happening. So that's just kind of like in the background, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like this weird hum. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think that's, and that's sort of how he describes it too. And it's like, it's a weird, I, I don't know what it is about California where it's like, 
people are, you know, breaking into cars and there's, you know, people are home. It's like, who do you think these homeless people once were? I mean, they were, they're not a different species who, right. you know, the criminal teenager was like once, you know, you know, a student or your neighbor or a, a, like, it's not just some other thing that somehow like materialized out of nowhere. No, and it's weird how sort of the California permissiveness allows that sort of opacity to fall in where you're just like, this is just some weird phenomenon that's happening because it's like, hey man, like do whatever you want. But that also sort of eliminates a, sort of like a humanizing existence of standards where you could be like, this is like really not okay and actually tragic that this is happening A, to this person and B, to the rest of us. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. And I think that's that's like a very pervasive attitude where standards are look, looked at as somehow oppressive instead of helpful. Like it's, you know, when you when someone's living in squalor, you know, to, to, to be alarmed by that isn't, isn't, you know, moralizing the squalor. It's like they, they deserve better. Like it's not, it's not looking at some moral failing in that person. Uh, no, I mean, and, and, and often and, it is, and, but I, you know. We, yeah. And we deserve better, you know, like you deserve not to walk over bodies on your way to work. Yeah. I mean, that's, and it, right? it's, like, yes. <laughs> it's so strange that like the, you know, especially in, I found that in San Jose where I lived for most of my Bay area tenure, it was a little bit different, but like in San Francisco, there's like such an inability to articulate this. Whereas like, at least in San Jose, it's like, there's some awareness of like why it's happening. And like, you know, it's like one, like kids live in this neighborhood and there's a school right here. And like, someone probably shouldn't be shooting up, you know? And there's like some like X affects Y, but in San Francisco, it's like, everyone's an alien and they're kind of just confused. And, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, 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 it's really, it's really weird. It's no, just, I, it's, it's disturbing. But I think what's interesting in the contradictions in the PKD thing is that he sort of allows for a vision where we could recognize the downsides of the type of disorder he seems to praise at certain elements in this. And that goes back to the empathy thing that you were talking about. Yeah, the 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 empathy thing is is interesting. And I think it, it must be, you know, I don't know. I don't know a lot about his body of work, but it must be a question that's sort of haunting him. And I think it, it may also have something to do with his, his mental illness, which is like, you know, what is, if you're struggling with the difference between thinking and feeling, then, you know, how much of empathy is a cultural construction and how much of empathy is something innately human mm. and innately, you know, from a soul, whatever a soul might be, you know, that must be like really haunting and, and really scary. And I think it's, I think it's a question that is coming up a lot now and is, is, is appearing a lot in sort of these emergent political identities you, as you see, especially online. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of the, I was thinking about Alex Kashuda while I was reading this actually. Me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, and her, and her thing about like, no, like cancellation and stuff is good because you need like, and I think you need sort of firewalls between people. And there has to be things that are like taboo or unacceptable in order for a community to exist at all. And I think that goes right into the question of empathy as we might see it and sort of what PKD is interested in here. What type of empathy is possible? To whom should it be extended? And what type of situation is that? 
it's not just a question of pathos and emotional reaction, but also the way we think through our own reactions and then come to our duties to ourselves and each other as social animals. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And understanding, you know, why, why we're reacting to things the, the way we are and, you know, where, where these things are coming from. And it, another interesting, it felt like a tan, but it, it ties into this, it ties into this nicely is, is the role of suffering as well in all of this. He, he describes this very weird situation with a woman who gets an abortion at six months, which, I mean, the story can't be couldn't have been true. I was just like really. Uh, well, it, it's either uh, true or, and he has a very bizarre social life <laughs> where he's just somehow around 17 to 18 year old girls, like all the time. Like that. we're just always getting late term abortions. Yeah. <laughs> Super late term abortions. Well, it was weird. Cause I remember, yeah. you know, he says that he takes, you know, one of these women in and he mentions, you know, she gets this abortion and what he's describing feels accurate. And then he's like, and then her breasts filled with milk. And I'm like, that I couldn't have had. And then like the next sentence is that she, she had an abortion of five and a half months. And it is like, what, I, I don't know. Yeah, it just no, felt completely, yeah. but I, but I, I mean, the, the, the more interesting thing to take away from this is that he brings this up at all to say that, you know, maybe it's not empathy necessarily that you know makes us human because may, you know maybe empathy really can be so easily you know at least what we're able to understand in other people or other objects like it can it, it can be performed in this way but suffering and suffering is what the 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 thing that makes us human is and he also goes on this i, I found it kind of hard to understand like a tangent about like Christ and Mary and, and her suffering as his mother. And I, I, I don't know what you got out of that. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of that has to do with this totally bizarre world cycle stuff. And so I guess if we're going to take a look at the Pieta, he's suggesting, I, th- I think I understand him to say, is that in the transition to from the sort of maternal son God, the guy we get, the... Uh, more male iteration of God or something like that, or it's from Gaia to the male son God or something like that. Christ is an iteration. Right. Of like the, the final, the, the final cycle is the solar masculine cycle. Right. And he wants to push against that. And I think the way that he wants to do that is to take a look at the Pieta and wants to ask questions about Mary's suffering as a mother. And he says, I don't think we're going to return to the Gaia, Gaian maternal but that there is some third phase that we're on the precipice of. And if there's going to be a redeeming feature in any of it, then it looks like this maternal feminine empathy and durability. Because one of the things he says several times is that many of the women in his life have suffered things that would break both him and every man he knows. Right. And and this is part of his knowing many teenagers who gotten abortions yeah or just yeah young women generally it's very weird you know uh, very weird stuff i i have a lot of questions about that it made me really want to read a biography of pkd but you know i think that there is at least a very important notion being discussed here and it's 
about if we go back to the Stanislaw Lem, like one day men will rape sewing machines, then him sort of asking, will the sewing machine be able to sue in court? There's also a very like tasteless, I guess, joke about whether or not the sewing machine is also a woman and it being more appropriate to rape an of age uh, woman than perhaps an underage young boy or something like that. I don't know what he's getting at, but the question revolves around agency in general and humanization in general and what is possible for us as thinking and living beings to extend to each other. The, the, the sewing machine being of age, I mean, that didn't he also mention like, will we put the sewing machines on birth control? Yeah. And like, will they get, will they get to go to planned parenthood or something like that? And then like, will they, there's this also an interesting thing that seems to be a feature also of its novels of like the machines thinking of their own God. And it comes back to that at the end. So you get the idea that there are sort of evangelical sewing machine abortion opponents (laughs) who are sewing machines themselves or something telling the female sewing machines about the horrors of what they're about to do at the clinic. Um, And then at the end, he says, you know, we are from dust and to dust we shall return. And he says, perhaps computers will say we are from rust and to rust we shall return. And then a great calm will sweep over the landscape. I would, what I liked about him, him bring to, you know, to that last point, bring that up is, you know, he also says, well, you know, if, if we're from dust, I mean, it's pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> yeah. How far we've come. Yeah. He's like, that's pretty rad. But yeah, to this, to this point about like humanizing machines, it seems like there's a sort of like, he just has this fear, I think that like about like meaninglessness. And then he tries to sort of like prop himself back up. Like, you know, does it, does it matter that they're, they're just machines? Like, you know, does, does that, does that mean that they don't have value? Which is, I, I, I think an interesting question. And I think sort of betrays like maybe his own secure insecurity about his, his, his place in the world of, you know, people's place in the world. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It makes me think about, you know, I'm going to rip this from Adam Curtis, so I don't know if it's right, but in one of his documentary series, I think it's hypernormalization. He has this brief discussion of Henry Kissinger's political thought. And one of the concepts that Kissinger develops in the era that PKD is giving this talk is of, I think it's called productive ambiguity, where you destabilize a region, not to create a new order, an order in your favor, but to create a chaos to your advantage. And that, that seems to be the nature of the totalitarianism that he foresees here. And I think what he doesn't understand or can't understand, or, you know, he's just early on it. And so it's hard to be both first and right is, I mean, it's hard to be either of those things, let alone both, but how that sort of disorder becomes to the advantage of whoever has the most power. And it feels like, especially post-COVID, that's sort of where we are. Yeah, I mean, you know, chaos to, to your advantage, definitely, it's, it sounds like a, like a very salient description. And, you know, it, it, you could see a lot also like how these, these Android, androidized people, as he, as he describes them, you know, that you, you want people to be like that because they're very predictable and the unpredictability of their environment messes them up. And then they're easier to control. 
Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's sort of his hope for the youth too. I mean, I was, I was thinking about your article on like euphoria and stuff while he was talking about youth. And I was thinking about the general optimism we have towards youth in America. Like, what do you make of that, (laughs) of that constant tick to be like, well, the kids will save us. Yeah, it, it kind of annoys me, honestly. And I, you know, I, I, it's been annoying me more recently. And then I realized it annoyed me when people said that about millennials. Right. And, you know, I remember like, I remember being annoyed by it, like in, you know, like as a sophomore in high school and being like, fuck these people. I don't know who they are. I've never heard this word before. And then realizing I'm actually part of that. I don't know. Like (laughs) I remember just like having this, just like anger towards the whole attitude you know, from, from very young, which sort of made me feel better as someone who's, who's getting, who's getting older, <laughs> at least I'm not just like a grumpy, a grumpy old hag, but like, I, it just seems like it's, it's like a form of like cultural procrastination or something. And it also, I think gives younger people this weird complex. I think I, I talk about generations a lot as sort of a way to, you know, as, 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 as sort of a way to like delineate or like make, you know, certain cultural boundaries. But I do think that it is, there is sort of like, it is an obscuring mechanism and it, it is a way to give people this other identity that may not be as important as other identities. And it, it, is, it is like very unfair and very like lazy in a lot of ways. And I, I think it also, you know, it, it holds people back as much as it overinflates them. Yeah, over the uh, Patreon for Exhaust, we're taking a look at this thinker, Reinhard Koselleck, his work Futures Past, and we've done the first part of it. And one of the things he discusses is that part of being modern is being self-conscious about your own place in history. In other words, for the medievals, it wasn't difficult for them to see that the lives of the ancients were basically just like theirs maybe with some minor alterations that you need not think about. The example he brings up is that Machiavelli says that guns aren't really going to change warfare that much, which is very funny to look back on now, but speaks to sort of the habit of just assuming the past is going to be like the future. And I think part of our generational thinking is a symptom of our self-consciousness about the periodization of our own lives and our difficulty in seeing continuity across time. I think that has been and will continue to be a very deep problem for us to try to navigate. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. And I've, I've said this several times and like, I, I don't even know where I got this phrase. Someone asked me recently and it's like, I know I didn't make it up. I just <laughs> remember where I read it, but like, you know, the, the, just we're living in this like perpetual now, this perpetual present. And it's like, we're just constantly forgetting things. And then anyone who sort of dares to, you know, make a connection between even like, you know, now and five years ago is like, lauded as a genius. I mean, it's happened to me, honestly. I think like I've sort of unfairly gotten, you know, my platform's grown just because I like remember when Bush was president. And I don't right. know, I don't know why, like, you know, it's and it's not even like historical or anything. It's just like my own sort of lived experience. And I like, well, there's I'm not the only person of my age group. Like what happened? <laughs> what, you know, it wasn't that long ago. No, and that's, I think that's sort of what's happening. Well, what's happening here in the future casting of PKD is that, of course, it references the past, but it tries to create basically this eschaton, this potential end of humanity as we know it. And I think that's really to sort of 
It's like throwing a blanket over a sawhorse. It's like he's trying to give shape to the whole thing. And one of, one of, an old human instinct is to have, this is true of the Holy Roman Empire, an idea of the end of whatever it is to be the thing that gives the present meaning. The only problem is that was a little bit easier to a degree in the Holy Roman Empire because you had recourse to predictions perhaps given to you by sacred texts and you had the existence of the Holy Roman Empire, which as long as it stayed together, the end of the world wasn't coming. You can imagine the surprise people felt. <laughs> uh, it ended, but not the world. And we're sort of living in the wake of that. And I think this is what, what PKD is up to is a gesture in that direction, is trying to reckon with a present that is very hard to give any prognosis for. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. He's a, you know, I've said this several times, but like there's a confusion in this piece. And I, you know, I think there, if, if, when you read other pieces from the same time period, people are more or less confident, but it's, you know, it, a lot of people were confused and it's, a, it's this type of confusion. Like you see, I think into the early nineties, at which point people are getting a little bit more comfortable with these new forms of technology and the, mm. the, you know, the, 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 the people who were, you know, teenagers in the late sixties are now like settled into adulthood and settled into positions of power and things start making sense, you know, for 10 years and then nine 11 happens and the confusion is back. Mm, interesting. So why do you think nine 11 was so successful at dislodging? That? I think, I think it was just, we, we just weren't expecting something that sort of that chaotic you know we like I, it feels like people sort of survive you know they survive the 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 bursting of the dot-com bubble then you have like this kind of uneasiness starts to rise up again in 2000 and there's a lot of like weird conspiracy theory stuff that's happening in 2000 and then the and then 9-11 kind of like puts like an event to this kind to this uneasiness that people had like these sort of to use the word false flag, but like these false flag events that had been like kind of popping up and suddenly it's like, this is, this is really big. This is, this is shake, this shakes everything even more so than any other kind of unrest that you see throughout the nineties. And, you know, of course there's plenty, but I don't think the, the unrest in the nineties created the same kind of disorientation as 9-11 did. I'm thinking now about the, the, we live in public experiment and the thing that for ran it where it was all of those people living in like this weird avant-garde compound underground in New York where they were all under surveillance all the time. Now, of course, a lot of these people were performance artists. So it really just exacerbated, I think, some of their worst instincts in terms of what they were willing to do to get attention. But one of the things that I remember a person who was involved in that experiment, I forgot what it was called, quiet. That's what it was called. Was saying is that because it was happening on the turn of the century, and the turn of the millennium, there was just this pervasive sense of dread and apocalypticism. Like New York, especially as this person had it, was especially pregnant with this idea. And this experiment sort of happened right on the cusp of that. And it, it, it I'm sure it had a huge impact. 
Yeah, well, the thing that the documentary that's titled We Live in Public goes into is that the guy, I can't remember his name, who sort of created that and sort of did the first live streaming and all of this and then live streamed his entire life with his girlfriend, is that he's sort of a forerunner of everything that we now live with every day, which is the digital world that you and I have been enmeshed with since that we were in our formative years and is now the medium through which so much of society plays out. And I can't help but think that like, even if we're not at full digitalization around 9-11, that there is some sense of enduring disorder or chaos that gets unleashed in the wake of it. The sort of permanent emergency that Giorgio Agamben looked at then and then again after COVID, that is the productive ambiguity that is part and parcel to the disconnected and seemingly random experience of, of digital life. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a that's a great way to put it. And you know, I, I used to, I used to be very like resistant to using 9/11 as I don't know, kind of a stake in the ground for tracing the way digitization has changed our, our lifestyles, but. You know, because I always, I, you know, I always wanted to say like uh, these changes happen like later. Like it just seems like it came later, but I feel mm-hmm. I feel like it became more visible later, and it was a mistake for me to like. I don't know. I, I guess I part maybe I like underplayed it just because the role you know nine eleven had in my my own life was was different. You know, as a child, so like my understanding of you know is not going to be the same as someone you know who's who's writing about technology or who's analyzing it. You know, its its role from a cultural criticism perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of what it, one of my wife's uh, students said, like, oh, you're a millennial. I get it. We don't know. The computer made weird noises. It lived in a room. 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, I think I, I, I've been very attached to this idea of, like, you know, between 2002 and, like, 2007, you know, like, life was was good because I don't really have like these strong memories of the, of the nineties. What I know of the nineties is like what my parents tell me and you know, what I read and what I watch on TV or whatever, but like it, that's, you know, that's not, that's not true. And it's, it's taken, it's taken a while to, to pry that, to pry that notion away from me, but it's, it's finally, it's finally happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and to sort of give credit to PKD, there's something about 9-11 that creates the legal world in which these gray areas can happen, whether it's the surveillance that's allowed under things like the Patriot Act. I mean, he's very concerned with the public-private overlap that allows these mega corporations, these uh, bastions of industry and tech to invade ever more spheres of human life. And I think that greater intimacy or proximity between the surveillance and the surveilled sort of creates the thin barrier between man and machine in a way. But am I right to have understood him as saying like, because kids sort of take, you know, take it for granted, maybe it's not so bad. Like I felt, I, I don't think he, he stays on that train of thought. For he, very he's, long. Kind of, he's conflicted about it. Because he's it's also like sort of weird. worried about your TV spying on you. Right. And he's like, well, you know, it, you know, I, did he, he said something, I think he said something to the effect of like, like I come into my own house with like illegal narcotics and nothing happens. So maybe we're okay. 
Well, and he says, I have this whole like infrared setup that lets the cops know if somebody's invaded. Now, if I accidentally trip it, I might be in trouble. So there's always this ambivalence about what's happening. I think the, what he has is a hope that we see today, which is that the Gen Z who's growing up now and who is just so saturated with media and tech in a way that I can't even comprehend. And I was pretty saturated when I was growing up that they will have a better fluency with media than adults. And sorry, I had to open a jar. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's true though. No, I, I don't think know. it is either. But that, that, right, remember, maybe you do, maybe you don't, that that was a lot of the discussion around 2016 and people getting boomer brained from Facebook ads and Fox News. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is like, you know, I've, I've definitely spoken to, to Zoomers who like, I, where I feel... I, I feel like they they get it, but you know whatever it is, I don't even know how to f- define what I what I mean by it. But I <laughs> I don't know. I think that I think that makes sense. But I feel like the problem with Zoomers is like they don't have enough. Like it's it's one thing. You know, I don't I don't know jack shit about history, right? And it's like one thing not to be rooted in sort of the history of physical events, but I think they don't have like a knowledge of like the history of the tech that they're so embedded in which you know which and maybe this is my bias but that almost seems worse so when they make like these predictions or just or they describe their the technological environment they're growing up in it's like missing something and what the thing is missing is like they don't understand what's going on because they've completely written off you know anything before 2008 let's say as irrelevant which is a mistake and it might be because zoomers are i think the oldest zoomers are 25 Mm -hmm. maybe yeah, so it's a feature of their youth, maybe. Yeah, it might, it might, they might, because I'm, I'm sure I did the same thing. I mean, I, ju- I was just saying now, like, you know, it, it, it was what, like a, a month ago, and I was like, that, you know, fuck the distinction between pre and post 9-11 America, which is, you know, dumb as shit. But, like, <laughs> but, but you know, these, these, these mistakes you, you make when you're attached to things that happened in, in your, in your youth, or like what you were cognizant of, I think that, unless that changes and it, it, it might, it might not. I don't, I, I don't, we don't know if they're, if they're going to learn that history yet. I'm, mm. I'm not, a lot of millennials didn't, didn't learn their history. And I think that lead and, 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 and even further than that created alternative histories, which is, which, you know, was that once a cute feature of like the, the wayward uh, young person, but now is a, a major impediment to to public life yeah i think it's hard to imagine and i don't mean this is like a knee-jerk criticism i mean this is like a like a problem that is worth confronting for for them and also for us but especially for them i think is what even a public life would mean for them and whether that's something that they even desire at this point i don't know is my I think question. They do. Yeah. I mean, um, I think I think you see the, the writings on the wall over the place. And it's you know, someone I did a, a Zoom talk last night about um All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, another Adam Curtis documentary. And someone brought up a really interesting study, which I didn't know about, but you know, intuitively seems true. Like people like young people who are addicted to the internet are not avoiding socialization, they're seeking it out. Yes. And when I, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned this a thousand times, but I just think it's so important when I interview people about 
Tumblr addiction, which is, you know, basically, or like Tumblr heavy use or whatever. The only thing that the people who've escaped instead of just switched to another platform, they're like, yeah, I joined a sports team. I went to college. I started having sex. I made friends. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, people want that still. No, I think, th- I think they do want it. Perhaps my uh, point was overstated. I guess I meant like a public life in a more strictly political sense. Certainly people want communion. I, I mean, God, well, I mean, then it's really over as PKD says, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if that stops being a, a basic desire, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to be, well, you couldn't pay me to be young again is really the thing that I've come to, but you especially couldn't pay me to be young now. There seem to be a lot of challenges. I'm happy with the problems that I have. I wouldn't want some new shit, not because it's just probably just because I'm old and it's unfamiliar and I wouldn't know how to navigate it, but I don't know. I mean, I think, where do you stand on the Android question? Let's end there. Do you think we're closer or nearer? I think we're so much, I mean, we're there. I think that- You think we're there? We're at full post human? Yeah, the empathy question, that's like really considering that, that's what what did it for me. Like we have avoided, we, we want a world where we avoid suffering um, suffering still exists, but in this this way where we're not really allowed or encouraged to explore it or ha- or let it be transformative. Like people certainly suffer, and, and uh, you know, just the most tragic ways imaginable. But the culture surrounding that suffering does not humanize it at all. And empathy is completely manufactured. And you know, like he he mentions at some point, like we're all loaded up on drugs. Um, we think more than we feel. We we're we're full cyborg. Interesting. Yeah. I worry that that might be true. I think I'm a little bit more ambivalent than you perhaps. And that might be just the ways in which I'm like low key a return guy, especially to like older traditions and things like that. But yeah, I think that the challenges for the human spirit, for the dying bird of the human spirit, I think the biggest threat to it is the way in which this computer life will become totally enmeshed with it because it's really still unclear what type of space the internet is, but it is obviously not going anywhere. Yeah, that's, I think that's a a good place to end it. Yeah. So thanks for doing this collab. I love doing these with you. Yeah. They're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. So I hope you guys liked it too. If uh, you're an exhaust listener, you should go check out the Default Wisdom Substack. Uh, that's Default Friends stuff. The podcasts that come out of it are great. The computer room is great. Writing is great, of course. There's also a Discord server. And if you're a computer room listener, I invite you to check out my podcast, Exhaust, and our Patreon, where we take more sustained book-length philosophical looks at some of the problems facing us today. And with that, we'll sign off. Catch you guys later and stay safe out there.
Talking shit, but they still wanna feature me. Then come watch me laugh while I'm. 